Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. Today's show is a little different from previous ones. Our chief of staff, Hank Sturmack, had an idea to blend investing with some fun. It turned out I had just the crew. For the last 20 years, four friends and I have met for dinner regularly to talk investing. Three of them, Brett Barth from BBR Partners, John Harris from Alternative Investment Management, and Meredith Jenkins from Trinity Wall Street are past guests on the show. The fourth, Casey Whalen from Truvo Partners, was a colleague of mine at Yale back in the mid-90s. We recently got together in Brett's offices and riffed on a range of topics 
including COVID, crypto, nuances in private equity and hedge funds, non-institutional investing, China, diversity, and ESG. We closed with a round on the two people who most influenced our careers. If you enjoy this as much as I do this crew, reach out to Hanker Me and let us know. I suspect I can cajole them into doing it again. Until then, please enjoy my most recent gathering with Brett, John, Meredith, and Casey. <laughs> You're going to start laughing. All right, this is a little bit of a different show. So quick intros, just so everyone can hear voices. Brett. Hey, Ted, happy to be here with you. Case. Casey Whalen. John Harris. Everyone knows me. And Meredith Jenkins is going to be joining us in a bit. So we have had dinner together talking about investing in life. We're trying to figure out how long. Brett thinks I think it was it's 20 years. 2001. 2001 I think yeah. it's after I started Project. I, that was like a 102. So let's call it 20 years. And that was around the time Brett, you and I met, Project and John and I met. Case and I have known each other for 25 years. Yes. Since Yale. Meredith and you. 28 years. We started Goldman, Goldman in 93. And our business school together. So suffice to say, we've known each other a long time, I guess. This is the first time we've seen each other since COVID. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So has life been? Casey? Surviving. Good. Come on. No, it's been good. I mean, listen, like a lot of people are really suffering. So we've been, all things considered, we've been good. Stressful, but good. <laughs> no, I uh, absolutely agree. We're me. all very fortunate and just happy so, to have happy so and healthy family and uh, uh, <laughs> markets that just keep going up. <laughs> this is so PC. All right. Like anything interesting to talk about? I hosted a pod of five 10-year-old boys. So that was a life lesson during COVID. What lessons did you learn? Lots about boys and men. I didn't know before. <laughs> Anything useful? <laughs> Offline. Oh, sorry, sorry. Ted asked the questions well, right there. No, I don't ask the questions. Based on that information, are you interviewing male portfolio managers any differently? Oh, that's a good question. I think one thing I have learned is when you're talking to boys, you shouldn't make like contact with them. So maybe we need to do more. Ted used to do the running and stuff in interviewing. So maybe we should consider doing more of that. <laughs> I am definitely not doing any running with portfolio <laughs> managers while I interview them. I have a new artificial hip, so I'm definitely not doing any running. Did you get a hip replacement? I did. You're and not that old. Price of titanium has gone up since then, so it's been a uh, very profitable investment. It's a value investment <laughs> for yeah. you. Has it been? Nice. It's been great. It feels perfect, but it's everything else around it that hurts. Is there a secondary market for hips? That's a great question. Is that like one of those that cut your kidney out when you go to the bar? Oh my God. Thing? Here, can, you, can, can you create- <laughs> Which bars are you, which bars are you going to? Here's a question. It's like the old can we yeah. create in, 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 an NFT of your hip replacement so we can trade it without you having to give it up? I'd be up for that. All right. Crypto. You guys doing anything crypto? Agnostic. What does, they, that mean? what does it mean? I think of crypto as a commodity like gold. And I have a very hard time, or we as a firm have a very hard time investing in anything where the only investment case is that someone will pay more in the future than you do today. That doesn't mean there's not a role for it, but I don't believe in investing in something where the only way to evaluate it is based on what someone else may or may not pay in the future. So what do you think of like the Chris Dixon case that the best asset to own over the last 20 years was domain names. That if you bought pizza.com 20 years ago and held it because more people came into the ecosystem, it became worth a lot more. I think there's a very different use case, right? Yeah. Domain names have a very 
practical purpose that has a lot of utility to someone who wants to sell pizza. Definitely more like the blockchain aspect of it, which is definitely interesting and adaptive to many different areas, like even in healthcare and COVID. But I think I we agree it's we don't want to put our head in the sand because people are actually using it to actually transact. And so it's important to pay attention to what's going on. But I think that we liken it the way Brett's describing it, kind of like gold. It's this what people view it at any point in time as being valued, but it's hard to underpin an actual value to it. And it can't really be used like currency in terms of there's lots of things you can do with the currency with the government in terms of more supply, less supply. You can't really do that. We have done a decent amount of investing, including venture investing in blockchain and DeFi. So notwithstanding the fact that we, by the way, we're not bearish on Bitcoin. We're just not bullish on Bitcoin. We're just agnostic because who knows where the thing should trade from a price perspective. But the fact that we're still trading stocks through DTC and settling two days later, and it still takes weeks and lawyers to settle loan trades is absurd, right? And so the fact that we need better technology to be able to transact and to be able to do it in a more decentralized way makes complete sense. So we're totally in favor of the technology and think that's going to be revolutionary and want to be invested in it. Yeah, I think that the opportunity is you guys were referring to is the toll booth, you know, the picks and shovels. And so we've been we've been focused on the security aspect of it. Well, you've been thinking about the cybersecurity stuff for at least a decade. But now, now that people you were ahead of your time. There, yeah, that's one of the few <laughs> things I remember. You're so far ahead of your time. Um, <laughs> listen, it's like always being bearish. We're never wrong. We're just early. So um, chain analysis is, is one. And so there's some great companies that it doesn't matter who's going to win or as long as the technology is used, it's figuring out how do you sort of take advantage of that and be the toll booth. It's like going back to 2000. You didn't know which companies were going to win, but there were opportunities to take advantage of the growth and the evolution. So all this stuff exploded since we last had dinner together. And I'm kind of curious, have you done the research on it? Because it's a whole new language. I listen to your podcast. <laughs> That's only going to get you so far, right? You could look at it. like It's easy to say like blockchain is important, cryptocurrency, who knows, commodity-like. But it's just a whole different world. Well, I think world. it's been interesting to watch the VC community. There were the ones who adapted it early, right? And then there's ones who are now slowly adapting it. So I think it's been interesting. We always get our best research from our managers, right? Across, that's the whole point. We want independent research. We want it from people that we think are critical, independent thinkers that can be intellectually honest. So I think it's been interesting to watch VCs who were not in it originally, who are slowly like dipping their toes into things and getting their thought on it, as well as people who were all in. I mean, you want to see all sides of the equation and then look through the research and what it says and how independent it is and what it looks like. So I think that's been for us the most interesting is just from our managers. I also think just as participants in the financial system, knowing how the financial system's evolving, how markets are evolving, we could talk about blockchain and crypto. You can talk about payment for order flow. There's all kinds of things that as allocators and investors, you've got to be aware of. And so spend a lot of time researching all those different topics. The second view that I'd say we're forming around all this is that it's a little bit like online retailing or even Warren Buffett in his comment about airplanes. Like this could be a game changing technology, but the destruction of capital because of so much money flowing in, we could all be changing how we trade, how we clear, how we transact, how we communicate. But it's not clear any of us will have made money on that sea change. Uh Oh, hey, John. Can I call it? Is that important? No. Oh, okay. 
Light rain stopping. <laughs> Light rain stopping. Oh, good. It's going to be dry. So how do you think it through? One of the things is talking to a lot of the end users and whether it be in the financial services industry or looking at how governments are using it, who are going to be the people that need it, want it, or spending the time and being able to talk to them and sort of get that sense. Also curious about this like concept that it's really important to dip your toe in the water, be involved, like we have a little bit. How do you take it from there to more or not more? I think that dipping your toe, we learned this in our early days at Yale, is that when you dip your toe in, when you're invested in something, you just learn more. You pay more attention. You live it and breathe it, right? The ups and the downs. And so for me, and I think by being invested in it, you then get greater conviction if there is a big dislocation to go in big, if that's the right thing to do at the time, or just stay away from it based on your experience. So I think you learn a lot more. You learn a lot more when you're in. And I think that's the benefit of dipping your toes on the margin. And it's one of the benefits, I think, for all of us being multi-asset class investors is we can dip our toes in without destroying portfolio value. If it doesn't work out, you have to take a risk. And that's part of taking risk is thoughtfully doing that. And I think by dipping your toe in, you're able to do it in a thoughtful way and then learn more going forward. Right. And I would add dipping your toe in isn't getting long the ecosystem. It's finding one or two really thoughtful partners who are sharpshooters. So you're not buying the asset class, so to speak. You're finding thought partners who can help educate you. And you're finding thought partners who you think are particularly good investors because they've got an approach that is perhaps more narrow than the whole ecosystem that you think will be particularly successful. I was afraid we weren't going to be able to talk names like we usually do, but you want to throw names out or is that? No. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that was going to happen. (laughs) Also, just that is one of the key things also is that we've been seeing with especially a lot of family offices who may dip their toes in, but they start dealing too much with FOMO. And it's making sure that you understand why are you making it bigger? What are you trying to accomplish? Sticking to that and being honest with yourself because you talk to people. I mean, back a few years ago, you'd ask people who owns gold and everybody would raise their hand. But then you'd follow up with the question is how much? And they'd say 25 bips because they didn't want to go to a cocktail party and not be able to say we don't own it. I think your dad used the term. It was a country club investment. Everyone wanted to say they owned it. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. Who wants to rat on private equity? I'm not. Everybody, love lo- private, everybody equity. Loves private equity. It doesn't matter the but price. But it's nuanced. I just think like these discussions, it's interesting when a whole, you know, the institutional world, right, got into alternatives and now it's all about private equity, but it's not nuanced. The discussion is not often nuanced. And I think I agree with a lot of people, the large, huge funds that are raising that are, we call them the coupon clippers that are raising sure I'm going to offend some people but too much money and it's misaligned but there's so many other things to do in private equity and we have this discussion with a lot of our clients because we deal with larger size clients that it's just this huge competitive edge and I would argue it's less risky than the public markets like if you ask me to put another dollar today in the public markets or with our private managers and I love our public managers but it would definitely be in the private markets if you don't care about the liquidity, which most of our clients don't need, and that's a huge edge for us, then you have so much more control over adding value if you can back the right GPs. And so it's just so much more compelling. And we're finding it across all areas, private credit, but it's nuanced. Like we're not doing cash flow lending and private credit. We're doing senior secured stuff that's like backed by real collateral and really good credit analysis and the groups that are staying small. 
in private equity, we've moved to like growth equity. We're not doing a lot of buyouts right now because the valuations we think are insane and the leverage multiples are really high. We'll do some specific ones, but not a lot of it. So I just think like a lot of investing is nuanced, successful investing. And I think the discussion often doesn't get to that. We get to that with our dinners, but it doesn't often get there. I think that's a great point, right? We hedge funds once upon a time were an asset class and it's moved on. I think private equity is the same thing, right? Whether you invest. Well, aren't they the same thing? (laughs) (laughs) Good point too. Any hedge fund managers not do privates? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Also a good point. But you know, whether it's growth or buyout matters. And we have a big view that we divide the private equity world and it's a coupon clippers is an interesting one where it's managers who are focused on enterprise value of the management company and managers who are focused on investment results and generating performance fees. And one of the nice things about the enormous amount of assets in these giant public companies is that they care about raising assets and they need to put that money to work. And so from our perspective, one of the other things we love about private equity is if you can create food for that ecosystem, it's a wash, (laughs) repeat process of I buy something Mm -hmm. small and I sell it to the big guys. We sell it. The the multiple arbitrage too, right? Does that mean that if you go back to the old days of Swenson that you won't touch anything that's a public company GP or a fund run by a public company because of that conflict of interest or their separate interest from yours? I wouldn't say no. I think any one of those hard and fast rules is difficult. We do have some money with some of them, but we- Did you have money before they sold out or- A little bit of both. Yeah. Because there's no hard and fast rules. But one of the nice things about these bigger firms is they've got, again, it's nuanced. They've got some managers that are incredibly talented that run products and silos that I want to be invested in that we're not going to exclude just because they're part of public companies. Yeah. But for the most part, the vast, vast majority of what we're allocating to is not. So how do you think about those exceptions? Well, we don't do as much in the large case. So I think it would have to be somebody that's doing something unique in the marketplace. I just think it's as you get bigger and larger, it's harder to be doing unique things. <laughs> you know, your universe gets smaller of the things that you can do and, and by definition, yeah. right? So I, I agree with Brett. Like, I think hard and fast rules... Are, And by the way, we also would say that there's many ways to make money. And there's certainly people who've done the larger funds and been really successful. It's just not the approach that we've taken. We think we have a better GP fund. Yeah, we have a better hit rate with groups that we feel like are super talented, but smaller and are willing to do. I think the biggest thing is the multiple arbitrage that you can get. And I think I agree completely with Brett, like. We sell to those guys. Our managers sell to those but guys let's all be the clear, time. Those big guys have done great. Yes. Being yeah. long and levered has been a it's pretty worked. useful strategy. It's definitely worked. Uh, occasionally, there are short, short periods of mm-hmm. just pure fear. But for the most part, being long and levered has been a great strategy. Yeah. By the way, that's how they all got really big. Well, and they, they have to be in the public. ecosystem. I mean, I was talking to someone recently. The compounding effect has also applied. Think about the endowments. 25 years ago. I mean, I, when I was, I think at Yale, I think it was 4 billion and it was 7 billion when I left and they're at over 40 billion now. And if you earn it, what are the returns last year? Like 30, 40, 50%. Oh, yeah. Career. And so best ever. think about that on 40 billion of assets. It's a lot of Wait, money. Meredith's here. Yes. Hello. Hey, Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello. So wait, we started by saying like how ridiculously long we've known each other. Yeah. You and Brett yeah, yeah, have yeah. known each other longer than anyone. Uh-huh. And you had the most hellacious last couple months of any of us. 
So you're doing yes. okay? Everyone's had pretty bad pretty bad last couple months, it yeah. seems like. But yes, I'm doing much better. Thank you. Oh, we got to figure out, we only have four mics, but five people. So just talk. We'll get really close. We'll just, yeah, I'm you got to be next to the person who just recovered. I can't hear you. Right. Thank you. I'm going to be right next to the person who just recovered from COVID. So, so Casey, had, you names. had COVID. Mm-hmm. I got COVID. John had COVID. Mary, your entire uh, squad. I had a staph infection. Spent a lot of time in the hospital. Brett, you've been healthy. I had COVID in March of 2020. I was an early adopter. An early adopter. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah. No, I've just, I just had an MRI on my ankle yesterday, brother. From that, I'm good. <laughs> it's just being old. <laughs> <laughs> in this case, it's true. So, Mayor, we talked crypto. Yeah. And got all the basics. Like, okay, yeah, it's important. Don't like the commodity, like the blockchain. Anything interesting to I, talk about? I would agree on the blockchain bit. And we're trying to do everything we can to to be educated about it. But I think it is like a couple other things that either you guys have already talked about or we'll talk about, you know, it is the beneficiary of just ridiculous, crazy liquidity in the world. And I don't get where the fundamental value is right now. I so desperately want to take the other side. I can't really, because I can't like justify what the price of Bitcoin is, but it's easier to talk about cash flow generative assets. Mm-hmm. It's just easier to talk about, we can underwrite this thing at 10 times, 12 times, than it is the behavior and psychology that anything in the public markets is part of. Because I'm so tempted to say, okay, I get it. I have no idea what the price of Bitcoin is either. But I don't know what the price of any of these late but stage also, tech companies yeah, that aren't making money is. But I also feel like it's also our vantage point. So if a family comes to us and wants to do something like gold or crypto, that's one thing, but we're fiduciaries. So we have to hang our, I always say we have to hang our hat on being able to evaluate why we're doing, is it fundamental value and have kind of a framework around it. And I just think it's crypto in that regard. We don't want to put our heads in the sand. Like to Meredith's earlier point, we want to learn about it and be educated and understand and obviously all the technology around it. But we also are fiduciaries. And so you can look back and say it was this great investment, but what was the framework for making that decision back So then? I'd say the same thing. Do you invest in any macro funds then? Because- no. Oh, okay. Well, that's consistent. No. <laughs> no, but, but I'm going to disagree with your comment. I'm going to disagree with your comment that we can only invest in things that are cash flow generative. I wasn't saying that. I was saying that, that that's easier it's, a, different, easier, it's an easier framework no, to underwrite. I'm going to disagree with that too, because we do, and all of us do, lots of growth investing, venture capital investing. And I think of all the biotech stuff we do, but you can sit across the table from a portfolio manager who can explain the science, why this is going to be a product or a a drug that's going to work, what the total addressable market is, what the reimbursement scheme is going to look like, and why it should ultimately be worth X. You can sit across from a venture capitalist investing in hot new apps, and they can talk about what the revenue model could be, what the addressable market is, how fast you can grow, but you can't apply that to everything. Yeah, that's true. And if you could explain why XYZ technology was going to be successful in a comprehensive and convincing way and what the revenue model is going to look like and where it's going to grow to, then you could figure out, do I want to pay price X or price Y for it? I would just add too, like, I think it's okay to say that there could be people making in the future, there's obviously people in the past, making lots of money off crypto. We're not saying, to Brett's earlier point about being agnostic, we're not saying that's not going to happen. We're just saying I think that we have better ideas that have more of a framework around them for success 
that we can put in the portfolios today that earn really compelling returns. Okay, can you share what those are? <laughs> yes. yeah, wait, so we're, well, we're going to get I've that said, in a second. I've said this to you before too. I think other people can make money that way. I don't think I can. And I don't think I can confidently explain to someone if I did, why yeah. I did. And so that's what, what why is, I can't. What is a repeatable process? Right. And there's a lot of people out there. You, you look at all the managers that launched last April 1st in the public markets who all did well and are all convinced that they're geniuses. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you got to really be honest with yourself and figure out where was I right? Where was I wrong? And you could be right and still lose money. You could be wrong. You could still make a lot of money. Yeah. I want to go back to something that Casey said, which is super interesting because it's like I'm in a slightly different seat now until next year when you all invest in my fund. But that's a separate thing. We haven't even talked about that. <laughs> Fun. Um, yeah, yeah, it's coming. The idea that as a fiduciary, you need to be able to underwrite something you can explain to something else. I'm curious if there are other things that you think that you would invest in in your PA or you do if you have it, if you're allowed to, that you just can't feel get comfortable with underwriting on behalf of other people. I mean, personally, like I think you're always willing to do things. We always love that we can invest in ideas with families, right, that are uninstitutional, but we always put an institutional due diligence process over it. And I think when you do personal stuff, sometimes it doesn't have to have that layer of due diligence on it because it's just a different decision. So I do think the fiduciary thing is different. It doesn't mean we can't do uninstitutional things because I think that's how you make money. But you have to be able to put that lens of due diligence on it from the institutional side. And we have to have a framework to John's earlier point if it fails, which happens in investing, we have to understand why it happened. And did we identify the risks up front that most cases when things don't work out, we have identified the risks. It's not like we didn't know. And I just feel like, what do you say about some of these assets like crypto? Like everybody decided they didn't like it anymore and it all went down. Like it's just a very different. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to get away from crypto and say, yeah. are there things generally for any of you that you feel like you would invest in yourself? but you won't necessarily on behalf of clients. I'm thinking of one thing in particular that we're spending a lot of time on right now that were it just me, I would have put my money into it yesterday, but we've been burned in it. And you'll understand when I say what it is. But if you're looking at frontier markets in sub-Saharan Africa, I've had both phenomenal and absolutely awful experiences there. I would today absolutely put my money in it yesterday given where valuations are. And if I'm a long-term investor, I do think it's going to come back. Valuations are crazy, crazy, crazy low. We're going to spend a lot more time on it to think about it from an institutional perspective. When I think about markets or investments we won't make, I think they fall into a couple categories. But the two big ones would be, is it morally wrong? And I think things are nuanced, right? We've done some life settlements in the past, but there's a lot of life settlements managers we wouldn't invest in because they're unsavory. We actually, back to esoteric investments and Casey's comment, like we really like litigation finance, but only certain pockets of it because some of it's really unsavory. You mentioned private credit, right? There's some loan sharking out there that's really ugly, <laughs> but that doesn't mean private credit's uninteresting. So, but those are lines I draw personally as well as professionally on behalf of my clients. Like that's not a differentiation. And we do all the professionals here invest alongside the clients and that's where 99% of the money goes. The other reason you don't make an investment is it might fail because even though you underwrote it well, just the investment doesn't work out. But if it fails for some operational issue, that's sort of unacceptable. Yep. And I would say there are times where 
just in our travels, we have friends, we have colleagues who you know are really smart. They're really talented. And what they don't have is infrastructure or guardrails or sufficient protection. And so if you ask me where I occasionally would make a personal investment that I wouldn't on behalf of clients, it's the operational side because the risk of failure is extremely high because it's two guys in a garage. We use terms like not ready for prime time, but you just have a good sense that this guy or gal's just really talented and knows what they're doing and is a relationship that you care about and want to be helpful and back them, but it's just not ready for clients. Yeah. I mean, we invest in three sleeves with outside partners if something doesn't fit into that and that's not what they're expecting, there's things that we do. There's things that we've taken to people and said, hey, we're doing this. Doesn't fit this. You may want to take a look at it. Here's why we like it. Here's why we don't like it. And they end up doing it directly. So we'll look at A to Z, but we always make sure that what we've told our outside partners is going in. That's what's going in. I love these situations. I had one recently. I think I floated it by all of you, which is private equity in Venezuela. So this is a good buddy of mine from business school. He's a fantastic guy who's had a fund. I think he raised, I don't know. I could probably say he probably couldn't, but probably a hundred million or something like that two or three years ago on the premise that they had hit bottom and maybe he'll come out. And it didn't work out the way he thought, but he still tripled his money in a year and a half. And now they're, they're raising another fund. And what was interesting was I shared it with, I don't know, eight, 10 friends. And most of them said, that's probably the kind of thing that's going to make a fortune. There's no way I could touch it. There were two who said, oh, I haven't heard anything about that. Let me dive in. Without saying the names, they run endowments that are thought of as being different, like a little more towards the direct investment end, a little more like, hey, we'll do different things. There's a lot I don't know about Venezuela, but it is this kind of like, the old Africa, Miles Moreland, Blakeney right. days of like they're <laughs> buying staples at two to four times. And if it holds water and the premise is that it's a dollarized economy now, so they're transacting in dollars, you don't have the currency risk for some of these businesses. We, we've been long Venezuela through an indirect play on sovereign bonds for three plus years. And the underwriting has been perfect. And we've made no money. And um, so I'm happy to talk to you at length about Venezuela. Or maybe we've we've just been in the right church, wrong pew, because we should be with your friend in Venezuela. (laughs) But we had had assets taken away from us with Crystal X years ago. So that's the investment we have is post that in the um, nationalization claim behind Crystal X. And we've got a U.S. court that says we own Citgo now too. But I think it's a good lesson. (laughs) But it doesn't help me because you can't even trade the bonds and you can't, with the sanctions, you can't settle it. That raises the issue, and I think this also is a little bit of a segue to today's market, of... There are some dives that are just a very high degree of difficulty. And so whether it's sub-Saharan Africa, private credit, there's just a lot of different things that can go wrong. And so now what we have to do is try to underwrite more and more things that can go wrong to try and generate sufficiently attractive returns to do that. In Venezuela, things can go wrong. In sub-Saharan Africa, things can go wrong that you 
didn't even occur to you to underwrite when you made the investment. For sure. But can't you also think about that as you would any individual venture investment? So you know things can go wrong. You know your assets can get taken away from us. And that's a real risk. And you could probability weight that. But you also have staples, the most important businesses for the domestic economy, trading at like two or three times. And if it doesn't go to zero, you probably make a multiple of your money. And that's the thesis. Simple thesis. With at least... You could say good partners. The government is a partner that you don't want. But it's sort of like, how do you decide when to take that risk? It's a wild risk reward, and that you know it is. What was stunning to me was of eight out of the 10 people, I'm making up those numbers, but roughly eight out of the 10 people I ran it by wouldn't even look. All right, so what's interesting? We love long short equity, and we've <laughs> loved it for like a while. And we decided probably five years ago to start migrating the whole portfolio, with the exception of maybe one manager to non-U.S., just with this idea, again, that people kind of looked at us a little weird, but th- we said just inefficiency. Where is it less efficient? And then the fact that the talent was there. So in Europe and Asia, you now have enough of a bench of talent with still, we would argue, inefficient markets. And so we always think even managers like in Europe, we make a ton- we do really well in Europe long short. Like It's just a great market if you have great managers. And what we found after 08, too, is with managers... I felt like a huge amount of the U.S. managers who had been very successful just kind of put their head in the sand, said, we're long short, we're fundamental, that's what we do, we're just going to like stick with it. And what we found is the managers that are more willing to stay in their lane but kind of be focused on self-improvement, I guess, for lack of a better word, and almost iterate the way that they approach things, whether it's through more data, more factor analysis, whatever it is, a lot of it's data but still stay in their lane. But this concept of like self-improvement, we found that that really differentiates very simplistically, like so, another qualitative thing. And big or small? Um, Europe in particular, every, everyone's yeah, pretty small I in mean, Asia. There's a lot to do in Europe and small mid-cap, I think. The managers that we're with probably have a blend, a mix of port, like one of our best ones, which I will name one, because they've been, everyone probably knows them already, but, and he's... I think he's probably the, one of the best examples of self-improvement and just is, and he's not running it anymore, but Nikolai Tangent at AKO. And I think, you know, Patrick and Gorm now are doing it, but they're just constantly looking at how they improve things, but they've stayed in their lanes. It's like, pretty cool to see. I don't know if you see it on LinkedIn, like what Nikolai is posting yeah. and how he's like trying to change the culture of the, yeah. the sovereign wealth. Funds. Yeah. Cool. I mean, it's impressive. And I think when Nikolai left, like then COVID happened and they were phenomenal. I mean, I, and I just think it speaks to the process and also this idea of like self-improvement, but then also dealing in a marketplace that I think is less efficient. How do you think about structure of long short shorting and the fact that all the assets and the guys who seem to continue to generate returns are the big platforms? Yeah. I mean, again, so this is just how we invest and it's not a commentary on those guys have been successful. I find them very difficult to underwrite in my seat because I can't get the information that I need to make a decision. And again, it gets back to this. I'm not trying to hide behind it. It's just we are fiduciaries. So how do we make decisions? So I feel like, again, we inherit those often in portfolios and we'll incorporate them as best we can into the risk frameworks that we understand it for families. But what we really focus on is more where there's fundamental long short value. And because of that, we've gone outside the US. Yeah, I'd say similar to Casey, we've been heavily non-US, but even when we've been in US, it's for the most part been smaller managers, often sector-focused managers. Because it's been such an unloved asset class, 
We don't pay anywhere near rack rate fees. It's smaller managers. For us with families, it's also managers who've been much more focused on tax efficiency. And so our ability to generate really attractive after fee, after tax returns has actually improved in this asset class. And I think one of the key things is the change in the structure from monthly liquidity, quarterly liquidity. You obviously are seeing a lot more gates which give these managers the opportunity to not worry about, am I going to get a, a slew of redemptions and I can actually hold, I can buy. And, you know, we see a lot of managers where the most money they make is during drawdowns. They're able to back up the truck. Also, I think that, you know, with volatility, people hate shorting and everybody's so focused on finding the privates now. Shorting's going to matter. And you saw that for a, about a... 59-day period in February and March last year when the market was down 20. The Did you stick people, with those same short guys in February and Mar- January, February, March of 21? <laughs> uh, some. Um, <laughs> but you, know, you also think about if COVID had hit in January, if it had really sort of broken, that any manager with quarterly liquidity that had 75-day notice or 60-day notice would have had, many would have had a, a run on the bank with redemptions because of the fact that say March 10th, nobody could get out for the end of the first quarter. And by the time that you had the second quarter redemptions for those people with quarterly redemptions, market had already recovered. People were a little bit more willing to, to let things run. So just going back to structure, I think structure really matters. Gates, I think have been very helpful to managers being able to think long-term. Yeah. I actually think COVID was interesting both for the public equities and the long short guys the drawdown rate happens so fast, but it was really severe. And so if you if you were a longer term oriented, even our long equity guys did a great job in terms of just saying, even if I project out three years of depressed earnings or five years of depressed earnings, these stocks are so cheap that I'm going to rotate my portfolio into these stocks that I've never been able to own before because of it. And I think that, again, gets to that underpinning of discipline and process around being able to make a decision during a very fast, I mean, crisis. And we said to, I remember with our clients, I always said to them, there's always going to be crises. They're always different. And there's always this line in columns of things you can't control. COVID, we can't control how long it's going to go on. We don't know the health stuff. We're, there's a lot of unknowns. But you can control other things, like what price you're going to pay for an equity and making assumptions that are severe about how long you might have depressed earnings and still making a decision under that framework. And we were very impressed with how well a lot of our public equity and hedge fund managers were able to make decisions around that. I'd agree completely. And I think it also goes back to being able to underwrite it. You in March of 2020 could talk to a manager and they could explain why they loved Hilton. You know, it didn't own assets anymore. It was really a reservation system. They'd be losing 50 million a month. I forget what the number was, but they had 37 months of liquidity at some point, the pandemic's going to be over and they're not long assets and they've got plenty of liquidity to survive. Or Visa, yes, consumer spending was going to be down, but it's a company with zero debt and the trend for electronic payments was going to go up. And I could give you lots more stories, but managers were able to take advantage of dislocation who could move quickly. And there's something about long short managers and the type of capital that they have that they were able to move quickly. And so long short performance in 2020 was exceptional. And ours was exceptional without it being growth driven. So then we didn't get slammed in the first quarter of 21 with the rotation happening because it wasn't a growth driven performance in long short for us, at least. We had both. 
<laughs> so it helped it helped in 2020 yeah. i heard a little in 21 but we also had the value guys like the energy guys were up big in the first quarter yes. of 21 too as ted told me once being diversified means always having to say you're sorry that's very true so, and also always being able to gloat exactly i've always got something that does well and i always have something to apologize for is there so over that period of time you know one of the questions on that long short strategy is the structure of the bucket. So it's one thing to say, oh, you can rotate your longs into these growth stocks that are now trading like value stocks. It's another thing to get net long. And I'm just kind of curious, like, did you guys see people breaking out of the confines of, oh, I'm Jones model, 120 long, 60 short, but now I want to get long because the opportunities there? Yeah. So what we found, again, we don't like macro bets on exposure, but we think that our managers, back to the earlier point about data and everything, they actually were already getting data on China. So if you had, even in Europe, one of the managers does a lot of companies that have ties into China. And so from their data analytics and stuff, they were already getting signals to kind of pull back. So they had actually already going into COVID reduced reduced the net to begin with going in so that they actually were able to be a little bit more offensive coming in into COVID. But on your point of yeah. nuanced versus generalized, yeah. like this is one by one. Like what what were you seeing inside your portfolio? It wasn't every manager that's doing that, right? Well, it was a decent we don't have that many, first of all. We probably yeah. have like, you know, six to eight at any given time of long short equity managers were pretty concentrated. So we have a big contingent that's Asia-based. So they were getting that information. And then we have the ones in Europe who are also getting similar information. So yeah, I mean, it was actually, it was interesting to meet with some of them even in October and November and December of 19, hearing kind of the data coming in from China on stuff slowing down and going on that then kind of gets, and it was, so it wasn't a macro call. It was actually a real call on data and what they thought earnings were going to start getting impacted into it. And in addition to being able to give existing managers more money, I would say by being close to those managers and being good partners with those managers, there were a number of situations over 2020 where you got the phone call and said, I need a lead investor. I want to back up the truck on this theme or these three names or this name individually. And so it's not just being in a hedge fund, but it's special purpose vehicles, sidecars, and other things that were created. I'd say we were as busy as ever in doing one-off investments. And that's part of being a good partner, being able to write a decent-sized check, being able to do it quickly. I would actually circle back to Casey's point on manager learnings over time. It seemed to me, uh, and this is more just speculation, but just from watching it and how quickly it moved, that the past 10 years taught these managers, like as soon as you see it starting to crack, go all in. By the and dips they worked forever. They, I think like Japan is a wonderful long short market. And Are there people, any hedge funds left? And Oh yeah. Four. We're in, yeah, we're in one together. And, um, you, can, you can go and visit them but, all in like the, two days. Yeah, exactly. But the best part is that you get this, again, non-nuanced view. The people say Japan demographics are terrible and like all this stuff. And I'm like, but we're talking about a long, short vehicle. Yep. Like it's super interesting, right? So we would argue some of the long Japan stuff's interesting too. But I just think we get the same thing with Europe. Like why would you invest in Europe? And we're like, because it's long, short and it's like super inefficient and there's talent and it's great. Like, there's all these things to do. So I just think, again trying not to get into this trap of the conventional wisdom at the top that's just like a blunt force object and really thinking through the nuance. I still think between John, Brett, and Casey, they're the only three people on the island of Manhattan that are bullish on long short, but I I get that it's nuanced. (laughs) 
<laughs> with, with all that said, thanks. Thanks. Look, there was a pause in the conversation. What do you expect me to say? I agree with three of them, actually. <laughs> Thank you. There's four of us <laughs> on that <laughs> island alone. Obviously, I, I agree, not, too. Sure. It's, not, it's, like, it's a subset of it, right? So I'm sure that many people have had yeah. very terrible experiences along short. I yeah. think, you know, if you're still invested with the managers you were invested with 20 years ago, I'm not sure you've had a great experience. It goes back to the nuance. Do I want to be in the HFR long short equity index? Not a chance. Do I want to be with a handful of managers with great fees, great, you know, fees. Right, we're going to hold on. But I'm, I'm actually, wait, by the way, Brett. I'm surprised I haven't heard from John because John wait, wait, actually cares more about money than you I care about the headline fees. John cares about how much money they spend on their audit. <laughs> no, how much they spend on their uh, private plane. We're getting to the John Harris frustration segment. I have one question, though. The biggest difference between today and when we started for you is your size. What you were talking about being super busy because you get the first call or a first call from your group of managers, a big part of that's because you've got a big balance sheet to work with because your business is what, $20 billion now? A little over. Yeah. But I would, I'm not sure $20 billion's big, right? I'm looking out the window in BlackRock and Blackstone are literally within a seven iron from here. So your definition of big varies. I think for us, one, longevity helps, right? We've been around 21 years on average. You know, We've been with a lot of these managers a decade or longer. You've become good partners. And so they know you well, they know what you like, and they know you can move quickly. And so I think notwithstanding the size, having a process that is rigorous, but can be quick helps. I also think we can write a $50 million check across our clients. It can be bigger if we need to. It can be smaller if we need to. If you had to put a billion dollars to work, it limits the opportunity set as well. So it's that sweet spot size. Someone said it earlier. I just feel like we were all maybe raised on being actual partners. Like I have to, when I talk to some of our teams, sometimes we talk about the fact like it is a limited partnership and you're supposed to be partners. And so whether it's operational due diligence or investment due diligence, we approach everything from a partnership way. So for example, on operational due diligence, we don't grade them. We have a conversation with them. And then if there's areas that we think are lacking, we help them. We're like, they literally call us. We're like, we become, we're not one of their biggest investors, but they'll call, managers will call us and ask us for advice because they feel like it's safe to ask us. We're not going to grade them and put them into the like blacklisted category. We're going to actually help them solve it. And that's key on the relationship. It's, we always say, which is bolded and, you know, capitalized. Is it limited or is it partner? All joking aside is that if they're screwing you over on, you know, nickel and diamond you here and there, there's a lot of money to be had if you want to be in bed with them. And I think that having that partnership and, you know, being able to write the check, being able to move quickly, being able to bring industry expertise as we try and do, that's who they're looking to do the deals with and to be able to take advantage of that. So, John, there's probably two things you're best known for in this group. One is having the most ridiculous network of anybody. And the second is always being super frustrated about something that's bothering you in the industry. And maybe also the third is being the early warning on cybersecurity. So what's keeping you up at night? One thing that's been frustrating for me is just the whole COVID and the attitude of it's all or none. You don't wear a mask or you you lock down. There's so much that we could do and seeing some of the behavior over the last year, year and a half has really 
you know, really bothered me in the sense of how hard is it just to do something to keep other people safe? So that's a whole full book on that. What's bothering me? What's frustrating me? I don't know if it's frustrating me, but what's concerning me is I think we're asleep at the wheel on a number of things. I think the China relationship, uh, there's a great book called The Kill Chain, which talks about basically over the last 20 years, what the Chinese have done with their military, their ability to pivot, their ability to, if something's not working, you know, stop and change. For example, you look at our F-35 fighter jets, our systems don't talk to each other. If you want to basically stop the F-35, you have to go to 100 congressmen and congresswomen and tell them, hey, listen, we got to cut jobs in your district because we're going to go this route. And we're spending a lot of time on that from an investment standpoint because the amount of money that's going to be going into this is going to be extraordinary. And you've already started seeing it. You see in China, basically, Byron Wien always said one of their greatest advantages was that they don't have Senate confirmation hearings. So they get the best and the brightest in their government, and they're able to do what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. They took their best and brightest, and they've been working on AI. They've been working on cybersecurity. Our best and brightest have been creating apps and games. Trading hedge fund strategies for Casey. Yeah, those are the second. I mean, the best and brightest are doing the apps. But we think that there's tremendous opportunity. And I think that it's frustrating that people aren't paying enough attention. And, you know, I think we're finally waking up on it. Cybersecurity has been something that, you know, has been as clear as it could be. And I think that we're really asleep at the wheel on it. So I want to adopt the Chinese policy that my teenage sons can only game for one oh hour a night, three nights a week. Oh, no, three, three hours a week. We, we that instituted is, it. So that it should be yeah. one, right, one hour yeah. a night for three nights. Yeah. So my wife, and we were not married the last time we got together, went True. nuts on this. Congratulations. Yes. Yes. Thank, I will accept that. Congratulations. She's mazel tov. Adult beverage um, time. I know. Um, <laughs> she went nuts on the notion that like, what's this going to mean for the competitiveness of maybe not our kids, but like the next generation of kids in the US. If we all know that like video games in general are bad. I mean, there maybe there are a couple of games that are strategic, but for the most part, like, there are a lot of games is, that are good. It's wild. I mean, no, there are, yeah. but generally speaking, not the addictive social media stuff that they're all on. Like this is, it's wild what China can do. All right, Mayor, we got to get you in here for a lot more. Yes, Ted. Uh, I'm here. <laughs> Anyone have any questions for Meredith? Do you want me to, I have to ask all the questions? I never have to ask This is another area that we didn't broach on yet, but we're getting passionate about it. And I think it's super fun because the tide is changing, but conversations around diversity, women, people of color yeah. that I think are, it's been game-changing, I think, in terms of the conversation. So I think this is an area I know Meredith's been focused yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, no. So what are you doing? What are you doing uh, on the investment We're side? doing a variety of things. It's kind of one of our – we have kind of a, a responsible investment framework that we apply to the whole portfolio, and diversity and inclusion is one of the pillars. And we both look at it in the context of our managers and spending a ton of time with them in terms of what are they doing, taking you know the first measure of what they look like right now, but what are they doing to change that going forward, what sort of connections do they need in terms of internship programs, all how you build a pipeline of talent that is diverse and inclusive, and working with a lot of our peers similarly. So and, what have you, you know, found when you dove in? People are very open-minded to it. Do they know um, what to do about you, it? You, 
they are starting to, you know, we are way past in a great way. We are way past the, there's no pipeline. We'd yes. love to have diversity and inclusion, but there's no pipeline. Like that's, that, that con- we'll I, would, I would say even as recently as three years ago, when you would ask the managers, they would say, we've tried, we've tried our best that we have no, there's no one will apply for the job. We tried. And the conversation is demonstrably different. Now, if I go, I went into a meeting and with uh, my partner, Jerome and and what's so great is when you work, our firm, which I love, is half men, half women. And you go in and it's it's actually Jerome asking the question, like, there's no women on this page. And they're like, I know we had had this woman organically come up and be a partner. And the other issue now, and this gets back to being a partner and not grading people, but actually trying to engage in the conversation to help them. There's now so few women at the top that they're all getting taken away from firms, right, competitively. So it's an even bigger problem for people who've maybe even tried to do it yeah. and now. And so I think we try to dialogue with them about sources of ways to get a better pipeline and work through it. And and there is challenges with if women don't see women at the senior level, it's hard to get them to join. So you have to actually give them reasons to join. So I think the dialogue is so demonstrably different. And I think people genuinely there's always outliers bad players but i think genuinely want to fix it and also now the data is telling you that it's better outcomes yeah the decision making so so. I, I have a thesis about this that i want to run by you guys which is that there are kind of two ways people are approaching this one is as you're describing which is let's talk to the organizations let's make this a long-term change it's a long-term problem it requires a long-term solution but a lot of the response that i've seen from the people i talk to is we're going to go invest in a diverse manager a diverse owned manager and my contention all along is that's incredibly misguided because the structure of the industry today was created based on the old norms which paid no attention to that so you can't Actually, if you look at how new funds are formed, most of the time successful new funds are spun out of other established large funds with people that are generally seen as credible and successful in the industry. So you're not going to have a wave of today of new diverse funds just because people go and decide they want to try to invest in them. You need to be able to do that 10 years from now. Well, I think it depends where you're doing it. For example, the VC market, I think, is a very natural market you need to put money in the hands of people to be able to move up. So there's so many amazing women entrepreneurs and women VC funds that are subscale that can't get money that are super impressive. There's a huge amount of them. It's not like they don't exist now. It's different when you get to hedge fund land. I think it's harder mm-hmm. because that requires a different structure, mousetrap, operational background, cost. But when you're in like VC land, for example, you can you, you can, can have a fifty million dollar you yes, can have a fifty million dollar fund, and you know and there's a lot of back office and yeah, and there's I mean if you think about it, I can't, I'm sure the numbers are going to be off, but what are women like fifty percent of the population, and it's ten percent or higher actually. Everyone's putting thumbs up. The educated population. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's higher. No, like college no college. Graduates? She's right. College, college graduates, and, law school graduates. But, I think it's less than 10% women in private equity in senior roles. Mm-hmm. 
that's an enormous yeah no and, people and, are paying a lot and to Mara's point if you look at like it's you can even di- go down to like MBA programs where I think a lot of the MBA programs are 50 or higher women so Warden it makes just for the first time accepted more than 50 percent yeah so it makes no sense and that the, so many the other schools is there that, and, and yeah. not yeah. business but so many like law all these other professional schools went that way like that's the I, talent I, is there just, and what I always say to people like for I think it's also just the diversity of thought the other issue that happens that we see is there's these pockets of money that you have to be majority owned by a woman. And I think that also just kind of is hurting the women who are leading firms, but maybe had to take outside capital to get started because they're already at a disadvantage. And then all of a sudden they get knocked out of the bucket versus just saying, why don't you just say women led or minority led or some other way to think about that so that that those pockets of money still get to them and they don't get knocked out. So we've gone like an hour and no one's brought up climate issues. Brett just picks up the mic. Here we go. <laughs> it's time to hear from the professor. Professor Barth. We've also made a lot of money on California carbon credits. Okay. Back to, you got to look at esoteric <laughs> investments. Been one of, actually, year to date, one of our best investments. At the same time, actually, oil has been good this year. Two things. One- Clean and dirty at the same time? Both. Zero. In all seriousness, one, we've done a detailed ESG review of every single one of our managers to know what are their policies, how do they think about investments. We have become, over time, firm believers that doing good is not mutually exclusive. 20 years ago, SRI was, you want me to fight with one hand behind my back? I can't own tobacco companies and you know alcohol companies. And now it's, if you don't have a sustainable business model, back to the, we invest in cash flows, you can't analyze what the cash flows are of a oil exploration and production company because I can't tell you what the terminal value is. Yeah. What is the value of a company that... Uh, John, John, hold on a second. John, John, care to share? You have to share with the whole, the whole class, John. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go ahead. Right? And, so, and so I would say we, we are doing significantly less fossil fuel investing. Having absolute, First of all, we've done very little public, a little bit on the private. On the private, it's been much more short duration and dislocation driven in 2020. But even that has really run its course and ended because they're hard to evaluate, right? We've talked a lot about investments that are hard to evaluate. I think evaluating fossil fuels is ever more difficult. That doesn't mean it's impossible that there aren't certain investments in credit or shorter duration investments where you can take advantage of the of the dislocation. And doing good's important. I would also say it's important from a business perspective. A growing percentage of our clients, that's a significant percentage of our clients these days, care a lot about how their money's invested and with whom their money's invested and what it's invested in. And fossil fuels is probably at the very top of that list in terms of things people want to avoid. But I think avoiding it from a investment case has almost, if not I don't want to say more value, but equivalent value. Have you guys caught any like blatant window dressing? Greenwashing in this case. I would actually say it's the polar opposite in that we've found a number of managers who've done less than they should have. They are uncomfortable in that situation because we and others have raised the issue. And then they've used us as a partner to say, well, what are best practices? What are some of your other partners doing? And how can we do better? So I don't know what the opposite of but, greenwashing but what drove is. that? Was that because you caught them yeah. or because it's that, important? That to them? was us saying 
having again it's qualitative not quantitative it's it although we do have a score it's a range and we kid around we call it the rankinator right you know if i feel bad about it and you give it a low score you know you get a score but it's it's a pretty quantitative (laughs) measure of qualitative feelings yeah but when someone does poorly in the ESG Rankinator, you highlight that to them. You highlight that they're not getting fired over that, but they realize that they might someday, they realize that they might not be allocated to in the future because of it. And what we highlight is we obviously allocated to them and we like them. We'd like their business to be more successful and more sustainable. And therefore they should be making changes to make sure that they can execute on our behalf even better going forward. And they should be making changes to do that. All right. So for the people who are looking at new managers, when I first asked, both Casey and Meredith started laughing very hard and nodding their heads that they had seen greenwashing. So I want those stories. Mayor? Those are people we're not invested in. It's not fair of me to call I, well, them I, out. I, I, you don't have to call them out by name, but what does it look like when you're going and talking to them? What, what does it, that greenwashing it, look it, like? It looks like reams of paper and no one being able to actually speak to the philosophy and Behind just it. sort of, yeah, yeah. We, we're able to check the boxes. Yeah, we have an ESG framework. Everyone looks at it when they look at But then you sit down with the analysts to say, well, what about this business you're in? How did you think about the ethical issues there? And they can't describe it. I'd say yeah, it's a lot of lingo without a lot of substance. Yeah. And it tends to be a lot of glossy handouts. Yes. Yeah. All right. I have like one closing question we'll do a round on. I think we can do that. This is uh, more talking than you've done in any other podcast. I, I kind of like this, Ted. You get to ask us a last question. Yeah, I think each of us should be able to you. ask you a last question. Well, you can do that question. too. That's why I asked you if there's anything else. No, I said all along, like this isn't an interview. Finally, I don't have to ask all the questions. Um, so I, I'm asking everyone I can answer to which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life. And we're going to start with Casey. Well, David Swenson, obviously, and what a super sad year um, with everything else going on, both, and actually I can say professionally and personally, just, I was talking to someone about having, your parents know you as an adult, but they know you in a different way, and so having someone who's been with you since senior year of college or whole adult life and losing that's been really hard. I've been really lucky to have mentors like across my career who've been really, you know, instrumental, like Carol Einiger at at Rockefeller, she was one of the first female partners on Wall Street and being able to work with her and get confidence from her. And kind of the approach at Rockefeller was was similar but different enough that it was kind of great training. So I've just been, I think, really lucky to have great mentors throughout my career. Full circle with Paula taking over. I know. It's so great to have Paula, who's a dear friend, taking over at Rockefeller. Rockefeller is such a wonderful amazing institution with all those awesome scientists there. So it's really fun to have her taking over the helm. John? I mean, number one was my father who dragged me to meetings from the time I was a, a little kid and dragged me to you know investment committee meetings starting when I was, I think, 19 or 20. I mean, I always joke that we went to baseball games and football games, so it was a normal father-son relationship. But he <laughs> was giving me Howard Marks letters early 90s and you know just watching him evolve i mean he went from when he started his career from the trading desk to m&a which not a lot of people do but then he made another transition into an investor and when he left investment banking and joined the pritzker organization and a number of investment committees so he's always taught me it's about people 
number one. And going back to the earlier comment about partnerships, identifying number two would be very difficult. I was blessed as a kid being around people like a Jay Pritzker, who when I was 12, I had to write, I had to give a speech on the person I most admired outside the family. And I, I chose Jay just watching and being able to sort of sit there and listen to deals over the years, getting to know Paul of Lent early. All you guys, I've learned a lot. Some of it has even been useful. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, Eric Lundberg and, and others, Howard Marks. You only have two. I, <laughs> I know. I was getting, I know, 2A, 2B, 2C, 2D. Nobody told me there was going to be math here. So they're all tied for number two. Brett? Professionally, I would say two people. First, I started my career similar to Meredith at Goldman Sachs. I lasted a little bit longer, and it was great to spend the first seven years of my career at Goldman Sachs, especially when I started. It was still private. It was still a partnership. You were working for people who were partners, and you saw how they conducted business. And from the partner who hired me to the handful of partners I worked for directly over those seven years, I would say there are... I mean, I think of investment personality where people come up through the ranks and they take things they liked from different portfolio managers they work for and they build their own personality. I would say I really built my business personality from just the incredible positive traits on how people interacted with their peers, how they interacted with junior professionals, how they interacted with clients from Goldman Sachs, but particularly the very small number of partners I worked for directly and, and hired me there. The second one professionally goes back to there's no such thing as good deals with bad partners and it's all about partnership. You know, I'm fortunate enough to be co-CEO with a partner who I've known 30 plus years. We were great friends from college. It was his idea to start this business 21, almost 22 years ago. You can ago. name Evan if you want. I can name Evan. Um, <laughs> said his name my god he's not i'll name evan um but you know for those of you who know evan we're also polar opposite like i'm the glass half empty guy he's the glass half full guy i'm the guy who can barely walk around the table and he's the one doing you know iron man triathlons he's the face guy i'm rupert the monkey boy in the back room like we've been great partners for for a long time and and i would say just asking the question what would evan think about this has me think about things differently all the time as well. Mayor? I'm more like John. I've got more than two. I can count, but I do have more than two. I could be like Brett and say there are a few people I've worked for over the years who are, are great because he actually did say more than two. <laughs> and he didn't name his Goldman. <laughs> anyway, I was very fortunate to work for two very smart really strong-willed, confident women in Deborah Fine and Ellen Schumann. Yeah. And both of those experiences were phenomenal, learned different things from both of them, but just feel extremely fortunate to have worked for both of them in terms of the, the shape that they had on my career. And then I would say, you know, having Kim as a partner for those five years that we were yeah. doing, we're CIOs together, I learned so much She's from her. She's so on just it. It's so fun to see. Kim Liu. Approaching yeah. everything, approaching organization, approaching portfolios, approaching management. Managers. I often think, you know, what would Kim do here when I'm sort of trying to figure something out? Is it my turn? Yeah. Do I have to go? So this is a funny one for me because Casey knows this better than anyone. Like Casey and I started our career, we didn't work with that many people. So it wasn't like you had all these people at Goldman. There were only maybe a dozen people at Yale. And then you go to business school and next thing I know, I'm like starting a partnership. So it's funny. So David was like to all of us, like a father, like an incredible mentor. And I didn't really appreciate 
how much he impacted me in the subsequent years until he passed away because I had a different kind of relationship with him after I left and it was sort of here and there and it would come and go and he wasn't a consistent sort of source and mentor to me throughout my career. But then when he passed away, I had been fortunate that I have not had <laughs> up until this year, a lot of people that were near my day-to-day life pass away. And it was just like a massive blow. So you start to appreciate somebody like that, not just for what they did for me, but the impact he had, obviously on Yale, but like all the people. So like he and Dean teach a class of you know, 15 kids a year or whatever, but you do it for 30 years, it's 450 kids. And they're all Yale alums. And it's, so it's, you start to get these waves, but it, that was hugely impactful. I struggle a little bit with the second person because I didn't have like a second mentor that really was influential for me, but I've had so many people. There's like managers and portfolios or people that give you advice along the way. I have a question for you. Oh, okay. Can we ask him? Yeah. At the yeah. End? There's no rules. So now that you're, so you moved from obviously having multi-decade career on the allocator side and now you're on this side. What, so what is, I don't even know what this side is. I don't even is. know what this side is, yeah. but you're obviously still in the flow of all the intellectual capital around investing. Yeah. What is the biggest shift you've made in your viewpoint on something? Like I think about all the philosophy we were raised on and underpinnings a lot of came out in this conversation. What's the biggest kind of divergence from that where you've changed your kind of mindset on yeah, something? Yeah, I mean, this is kind here? of, I don't think the SEC will let me say much if that's what happens, but... I always obviously view myself as an investment person, but this was just sort of when I created the vision statement for what we're doing, I, I said it's to learn, share, and implement the process of premier investors. I had said elite investors, but I decided elite, you can't even say that word anymore, I was told. So it's premier <laughs> investors. But the, the concept was the same. So the first thing is potentially elite. Yeah. The first thing is the biggest difference, which is a huge contrast. The huge contrast from where we started is I love sharing things with people. And when we worked at Yale, you weren't allowed to share anything with anybody. But you know what's funny about that, though, is the nonprofit world all talks to each other and then you get to for profit. And so, like, I think, like, people are kind of shocked sometimes that Brett's team and our team, like, talk, talk all to each the other. time. I I and gonna... they're like, you guys are competitive. I'm like, yeah. well, Brett's slightly bigger than we are. But no, but we, but our teams, like, our teams, I think, are particular. I had lunch with another competitor earlier today. Yeah. I and mean, I think one of the things I love about this business is it is collaborative. Yeah. You know, that John and I can share manager meetings and um, <laughs> we trade names. We've and, and, I, and I think it even goes times. back to the 20 years ago. We had dinner together and talked investment ideas and traded manager yeah. ideas and asked, you know, we're sending, still sending each other emails on, have you heard of this person or what do you think of that idea? And one of the things I love about this business is that you get to talk to other smart people and share ideas and be collaborative and that the world's a big place. I'm not looking to, you know, put up on a billboard every manager we're allocated to, but that there's a lot of smart people you can share ideas with. That's awesome. Yeah. That's what makes this, among other things, so much fun. So Casey, I'd say that that's the first thing for me is like that part of it is just who I am. And I, we, I, we were in a box where I wasn't able to do that. The other part of it for me is that when you're trained in a certain way of thinking, like, so we were trained value is good. Value investing is good. And that's your formative experience. It takes a while to get to the place where you understand, okay, you can intellectually relate to that, but that doesn't mean that's how you best invest. And so it was only about a year, year and a half ago where this became a little business and it was okay for my life. I started investing my money again and it was so much more in sync with 
how I feel I am as a person, what I do best, which a lot of it is how can I help add value to the people I'm investing with? All right. I think we should wrap it up. That was super fun. I want to talk to you guys about my fund. I can't do that on the air. So we're just going to shut it off. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. An important disclaimer from Janice Henderson Group, PLC. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value.